Thanks for listening to this podcast of Trending with Timory from the Relevant Radio app. Anything you share in terms of episodes, whether it's texting it to a friend, posting on social media, helps to build up the kingdom for God to help confront the challenging issues we face as a culture, but with joy, with hope, and with an eternal perspective where our faith collides with everyday life, bringing eternal principles to help us live our life joyfully. So, what's trending? Bridging your Catholic faith with your everyday life. You're listening to Trending with Timory on Relevant Radio. Welcome to our weekly marriage hour today on Trending. You don't have to be married to join us. You might be dating in a relationship, married newly, or many years. We're here to talk from a Catholic perspective about the important role that relationships and dating have in our faith. So just navigating that day-to-day. We'll talk about some neat news and interesting. You may have heard the news of Millie Brown from Stranger Things, how she's engaged to Jake Bon Jovi, the Bon Jovi's son. They're only 19 and 20 years old, and there's been a visceral reaction in both directions. The pessimism has been real, but so has the celebration and shock and and excitement over such a young couple getting married. We'll talk about that a little bit later on today. Uh, Why or why not get married younger? We'll talk about that in just a little bit on Trending. Joining me today is licensed marriage and family therapist, Joe Sakura. This is your hour to ask your question to ask a therapist. Maybe you're in a tricky relationship trying to navigate dating or you're struggling with forgiveness and reconciliation. Today, Joe and I are going to unpack the topic of forgiveness versus reconciliation and what this means for dating and marriage. You're listening to Trending with Timory. Joe Secor is a licensed marriage and family therapist with a new book that's come out called The Whole World is Going Crazy, But You Don't Have to. You may know him as well from the Joe Secor Show. Without further ado, Joe, welcome back to Trending. Thank you for joining us to talk about these important topics surrounding dating and relationships. It is my pleasure, and I'm so uh, enthusiastic about it because, as we've said before, there is nothing that's going to determine the quality of your life, your health, your longevity, your sense of well-being, more than the quality of your relationship. So whether you're dating or you're married, it's so important that we pay attention to these things that actually make relationships thrive. And I, I think one of the things, and we wanted to start here, Timory, which is really great, is talking about the difference between forgiveness and reconciliation. We sometimes think that they're one and the same, and they really aren't. You know, you can experience mm-hmm. forgiveness, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the relationship is going to go on, that it's going to thrive. <laughs> I've heard mm-hmm. couples say, it's like, well, I've asked for forgiveness. What else does she want? I, well, maybe for you to <laughs> act a little differently. <laughs> <laughs> So, <laughs> I, so I really appreciated in your book that you gave the example of a woman saying I asked forgiveness and nothing changed because when I read that I thought you know I feel like it's more common for a man to say I asked forgiveness so what does she want exactly that you know I know these are some stereotypes but in your book you have a whole chapter dedicated to forgiveness and reconciliation and marriage and you emphasize how this is central to our faith right and we pray that our father yes. and forgiveness is so at the core so let's maybe talk about the two separately and then how they flow into marriage itself, uh, starting with forgiveness, because your take on forgiveness, I think, is important. You bring faith as well as science and medical data to this conversation. Yeah, there's a lot of secular research that talks about forgiveness, and it's, you know, what happens to ourselves, our bodies, our, our souls, our, our psyches, 
when we actually forgive. The, the act of forgiveness is so important. I mean, there's, there's a reason why God says, you must forgive. <laughs> no matter what, you must forgive. Because the truth is, when we forgive, we're letting go of the hurt. We're letting go of the idea of retaliation. And when we do that, the brain and the body responds. And believe it or not, our cortisol levels drop, you know, our, our cholesterol goes lower, our, our blood pressure goes lower. So no matter what you believe about faith, and I know the vast majority of your audience are faithful Catholics or striving to be faithful Catholics, it's good to forgive. You have to forgive. But it's really important to understand that there really is a difference. Forgiveness, first of all, and I think it's really important. Sometimes people withhold forgiveness because they say, well, if I forgive, that means I'm giving my boyfriend or my spouse or girlfriend a pass on what they did. It means I'm saying, mm -hmm. oh, it's okay what you did. And that's not what forgiveness is all about at all. Forgiveness is really letting go of the idea of retaliation or revenge. Forgiveness isn't saying, oh, what you did is okay. That's when we move into reconciliation. You must forgive. You have to forgive. And you must forgive, first of all, for your sake. Because when you let go of the idea of retaliation, again, you benefit. But reconciliation is saying, yes, I forgive you. But now let's look at this relationship and bring it back with changes. And that's what's really so important to make any relationship thrive is this idea of reconciliation. And something you mentioned in your book that I thought was really important is that some relationships shouldn't and don't need to be reconciled. And sometimes it's a part of forgiveness, but there are a lot of relationships, especially marital relationships, familial relationships, where the forgiveness needs to occur and then the new version of the relationship needs to come forward in reconciliation. And I thought that was a really important distinction that sometimes we don't need to reconcile. We need to allow things to be forgiven, but walk away. Yeah, exactly. I mean, obviously, if you're dating or you're engaged uh, and, and you're, you know, your significant other does something wrong, you have to forgive. But that's the time to look at the relationship and say, okay, can it be brought back? Should it be brought back so that we can continue to move forward? But sometimes there are red flags and, and you've got to say, you know what, this is a relationship I, I need to walk away from. And I, I hate to say this, it even it pains me somewhat to say this, but sometimes even our, in our families of origin, we always must forgive, right? Somebody, our parents hurt us, our brothers, our sisters hurt us, we must forgive. But now as an adult, you have a choice whether or not to continue to, you know, prioritize that relationship. You know, your, your brother did this or that. It's like, okay, you must forgive. I think ideally it's wonderful if you can reconcile that relationship. But sometimes you have to say, you know what, this isn't a healthy relationship for me. I, I've seen this, you know, counseling adults who say, you know, my mom or my dad, what they did is so horrible. And it is still so horrible what they're doing. You know, do I, as a Christian, as a Catholic, do I have to make this relationship right? And my answer is, no, you don't have to. You have to forgive. But you don't necessarily have to pursue this relationship as though it must continue to exist. Does, does that mean I, is, this whole thing yeah. can be really confusing to listen to? But yeah, no, sometimes you walk is, away or friendships. 
Right. And I think that's an important distinction. It's difficult. You know, we hear a lot about different types of toxic relationships. And I think there's a mode today of uh, young people who are going no contact, for example, toward parents for reasons that are not right and just and acceptable. But then there's also a time where there needs to be that cut off uh, that in order to have that level of self-preservation. And that's what's at the heart as well as of forgiveness. When you talk about it in your book, you talk about how, you know, everything from the immune systems, heart attacks, you know, all of that is impacted by our inability to forgive, to harp on something, to seek out that revenge. But just by the act of forgiving, you're helping to decrease that fight or flight reaction, which I thought was really significant. You mentioned in the book that you maintain the fight or flight uh, reaction if you do not forgive. Can you talk just a little bit about that? Because I think that's really important in our relationships that we don't realize that we're literally in a chemical state within our body of fighting or fleeing. Yeah, I mean, this is one of the natural stress responses that gave us, that God gave us. It's a part of our brain. You know, it, fight or flight lives in a small part of the brain called the amygdala. And literally, it, it's that part that when we recognize a threat to our lives, our body, we have a physiological response and, and our body prepares to either fight or flee or in some cases freeze, you know, just, just stop right where you are. That's also a part of a natural response. And when you hold forgiveness, what you're doing is you're holding on to that idea that I am still under attack or I need to run from this person. So forgiveness is really about letting go of that fight or flight um, concept. Now, again, it, it needs to be distinguished between that and reconciliation. Forgiveness is I don't have to fight this person any longer. Mm -hmm. You might have to work really hard to reconcile that relationship. You both might have to make changes in what you're doing to bring the relationship back in a healthy manner. But forgiveness is really uh, moving that shift from focus and how I've been hurt to how can I love? You know, how can I let go? God says, love your enemies, not just those who love you, but love everyone. So when we forgive, we're shifting that focus and taking the body away from the fight or flight. Now, some people will argue, well, I feel like I'm just giving someone a pass if I forgive them. I know God tells us for, to forgive. I know it's a part of the Our Father, but it's like acting as if nothing has happened. And I think a lot of people use this as an excuse to not forgive, but also a misunderstanding with regard to what forgiveness is. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. And that's why, you know, in this chapter in, in my book, I, I talk about the distinction between forgiveness and fight or flight. God says you must forgive, period. <laughs> you must forgive. But it, he doesn't say you must reconcile. Reconciliation is really about bringing back the relationship with changes. So you can forgive, but let's say you're married and let's say you've got a desire to save that marriage. All good, right? Let's say there's nothing so extreme in this marriage, you know, abuse and everything else that you... You've got to get out of it. But let's say, okay, this is not working well. So you forgive. That sets the stage for reconciliation. You're letting go of the fight. Uh, just like when Jesus caught the woman at the well, right? There was two components to that. Jesus said she was caught in the act of adultery. And Jesus said, I forgive your sins, right? That was the forgiveness part. And then he said, go and sin no more. That's the reconciliation part. So he's saying, 
Forgiveness is there. Now change your life. And that's what reconciliation is all about. But forgiveness actually sets the stage for reconciliation. I want to walk through the four steps of reconciliation in a moment that you lay out in your book that really model the sacrament of reconciliation. Before we go there, though, I keep thinking about dating relationships. And I remember when I was dating my now husband, a number of people have said, you know, you want to prepare well for marriage, learn how to fight well. But after reading this chapter of your book, I think I want to kind of rephrase <laughs> that and think, no, learn how to reconcile well. And if you can reconcile yeah then that is a sign that this could be someone you could marry. Not, not that it should be, because I think there are a lot of people we can reconcile with. It doesn't mean we should marry them. Right. Uh, but I think that this right. is kind of the key to that discernment in dating and to that formation and preparing for marriage as well. Yeah, in my eyes, and maybe I'm a little different as a therapist than than many, but I, I just don't believe in the idea of the fair fight. I don't I don't know what that looks like. Now, you will encounter difficulty. You will encounter differences, right? But it's how you navigate those differences. It's how you work through the difficulties. That's not a fight. That's, that's a negotiation that might include compromise and, and give and take. That's an important quality to have if you're dating somebody and saying, well, what happens when we run into this block wall and we can't get beyond it? If you can't get beyond it, then I'd say that's a serious red flag. If you're staying angry or you're always coming back and angry, then I'd say, well, maybe that's not a relationship that should move forward. But if you're dating or if you're engaged to be married, you will encounter times where you disagree, whether it's talking about the wedding or how to spend your vacations or how to spend money. But you've got to navigate that. And, and that's what's so important. But the fair fight idea or learning how to fight to me, it's just a ridiculous concept to learn how to navigate difficulties. That's beauty. That's life. Yeah. Navigation. And I think that that's the caveat. Like, I think that's what people mean when they say learn how to fight well, but it could be mistaken, like misunderstood, right? You know, this idea of, you know, really dig yeah. in, stand for your perspective. No, it's how do you uh, not necessarily say give in. I think people have that wrong understanding, but you concede. Sometimes it's good to concede. Sometimes it's good to negotiate. Sometimes it's good to have a little bit of humble pie and you don't always get your way. Uh, that's good for us. You're listening to Trending with Timory yep. here on Relevant Radio. That's Joe Sikora. He wrote the book, The Whole World is Going Crazy, But You Don't Have to. It's a scriptural and psychological response to help heal in the face of everything that's going on in the culture. Joe, looking at your chapter on forgiveness and reconciliation, you discuss the difference between forgiveness and reconciliation, and you walk through four steps of reconciliation. Can you talk to us about that and how important that is, especially in relationships? Well, it was interesting. I was talking to my good friend, Father Dave Heaney, who you probably, maybe many of your audience knows. He did yes. the rosary across America for years, and he's a dear, dear friend of mine. And he's also a brilliant uh, in terms of therapy. You know, he's got his master's degree in psychology. So we love talking about all things that actually create mental health and well-being. And one night we were talking about the difference between forgiveness and reconciliation, and he actually pointed this out. We were talking about it. And he said, you know, Joe, he said, that idea is really modeled in our Catholic idea of, you know, confession or reconciliation. And there's four steps, basically, in reconciliation. And they're actually, it's a great model to think about 
how we reconcile in our relationships, not just forgiveness, but reconcile. Again, bring back the relationship anew. And the four steps are basically contrition, confession, penance, and absolution, right? So when you look at contrition, let's say you're getting in a, you're, you have an argument or dispute with your, your spouse or your boyfriend, your girlfriend. Contrition is really about that sense of guilt, like I've done something wrong. You know, the contrite heart feels sorrow and remorse because you recognize that in your wrongdoing, you have hurt that other person. And that's really that first step, right? When you go to confession, why do you do it? Because you recognize that you sinned and you want to address this, right? But it's not called the sacrament of forgiveness. It's called the sacrament of reconciliation, right? Mm -hmm. So you recognize the contrite heart recognizes that you feel bad for having hurt this other person. And you actually allow yourself through that empathetic experience to feel their pain, right? That's called empathy. And, and so that's where it begins is, you know, for a relationship to re be reconciled, you have to first feel contrition. And I think that's a real challenge because a lot of times when we're fighting, whether it's your boyfriend or your friend or your spouse, we're focused on what the other person did to hurt us. It's a natural response, but it's not necessarily the healthiest response. The healthiest response is to look at our own lives and say, what is my part in having, bringing about the demise of this relationship or the fight? So when you can look at that, when you look at yourself, then you recognize what you've done, then you can feel that pain. And that leads to step two, <laughs> mm -hmm. confession, right? And all these are wonderful steps towards reconciliation. Again, confession. Now, I'm not talking about, I'm not a priest, obviously. I'm not a theologian. So I'm not talking about this in a sacramental sense, like you going to the sacrament of reconciliation. I'm talking about it in terms of a relationship. But again, step two, confession, is you confess, you acknowledge what you've done to your spouse or your you know, friend, whoever this is, and you say, I see what I have done is wrong and this is it. Now, it's not just like, oh, I'm sorry, I yelled. It's a, it's a real recognition and an understanding. It actually leads to meaningful dialogue, uh, you know, a, an opportunity to grow closer. It's this profound search to understand why you did what you did. It's not just saying, oh, I yelled at you. I'm sorry. It's like, why am I doing this? You know, let me, let me really understand this in my own life. Let me understand why and how it hurt you, why and how I did this. And again, this is an important part for moving towards a reconciled relationship. And this, this, this is the time for couples to really grow close, to have that meaningful dialogue. And then the third mm -hmm. step, as you know, penance, right, is this outward act to repair the relationship. So I've done wrong, I feel bad, I speak about it, or I confess it. The third one is again, that penance, let me act differently, right? Love is a pro-social mm -hmm. act. It's not just about a feeling good. It's a commitment to act charitably, to change the behavior. That's that penitential act. So it's not just reframing or refraining from yelling. You know, it's not, that, oh, I'm not going to yell at you. It's actually being pro-social. It's I'm going to love you. I'm going to speak tenderly to you. 
And then the fourth, of course, is absolution, right? When you go to the sacrament of reconciliation, you receive absolution from the priest. And in a relationship, it's, it's really about living out that reconciled or that amended relationship. You know, it, mm-hmm. it includes all of the above, the, the penance, the contrition and all of that. But it's really about bringing back the relationship anew, that reconciled relationship. So those does last, that make sense? I mean, yeah, I, I, <laughs> those last two parts, I think, are really important. I think sometimes they're what's missed when you talk about the penance dimension within a relationship. We talk about that yeah. outward attempt to fix it, that outward act. Uh, you talk about it in a positive light rather than a negative light. And I think we yes. often consider penance, as you just said, a negative thing. Oh, I'll no longer yell at you. No, it's actually the opposite. It's not just stop preventing yelling if we just say oh i won't yell anymore it's not going to happen it's replacing it with something good creating a new behavior or change where instead i'm going to talk tenderly or i'm maybe going to bite my tongue instead of yelling at you and say something nice you know it's the actual right. action of creating a new behavior not just not doing something and it reminds me kind of that definition of chastity is a lot of people think that you know chastity means just not having sex a big no but that's when we get it wrong we just say no rather than understand what we're saying yes to in that gift of self and that fidelity to your vocation and if you have a spouse to that spouse you will one day have i think that those those definitions sometimes when we actually drill down on them especially from the perspective of catholic theology we understand the positive dimension of what we're called to in that transformation in that behavior, which is, I think, significant, Joe. Here we are this week in the midst of Easter, where we're not supposed to have this perspective in our Catholicism of just staying on the cross, that we're supposed to go through the cross with Christ and in Christ and into the resurrection with Christ, that we have that new birth in terms of the relationships that we are experiencing day to day. Yeah, yeah, I, that's, I think, perfectly said. It's, it's not just withholding bad behavior, it's being proactive. You know, the Apostle Paul says that that marriage, and I'm paraphrasing, I think he says this in Ephesians, if I'm not wrong, but he says, you know, marriage isn't just a decision, you know, to stand up for your rights. I deserve this. I do. Marriage, uh, marriage is a decision to serve, to act, to lay down your life. Uh, and, and I think that's what love is. You know, we, we can't say, oh, I love by not hurting you. No, I love by treating you well with tenderness and compassion and all those pro-social behaviors. And we can do that. You know, we can, we can reconcile most relationships. And, and I know I've, I've counseled people who say, oh, yeah, this is, this is really bad. And I say, yes, it is. You know, it's not my <laughs> job to, to say whether or not this can be, you know, looked at the church and, and declared annulled. But, but sometimes... It's painful to say, but sometimes we actually do make that decision and we marry the wrong person. But that being said, oftentimes we actually feel that's the case when we're hurt, you know, because that hurt sometimes can go so deep because it's not just what this person, your spouse is doing to you right now. It brings you back. It reminds you. It feels exactly like the hurt that you experienced when you were a child. So sometimes we arrive at the conclusion falsely that this marriage never should have taken place. And sometimes mm-hmm. that is the case. Again, above my pay grade. <laughs> I'm not here to say what relationships or marriages should be annulled or not. 
But we don't want to necessarily just assume that without going through that process and really changing the relationship so that it comes back in a reconciled way. And frequently that can happen. This is what I love about your book. Maybe you've never been willing to go and see a therapist. You think, oh, it's a shrink. I'm not going there. I think there's been a stigma in the past with regard to seeing therapists. I think that's changing with the younger generations today. It seems like everyone goes to therapy, and that's a good thing. There are a lot of wounds that need to be healed, and there's a lot of faulty thinking and function within family. So Joseph Cora wrote the book, The Whole World is Going Crazy, But You Don't Have to, Scriptural and Psychological Healing. You need this book. It's available now on Amazon. We post a link on social media as well as in the episode notes. Joseph Cora, licensed marriage and family therapist, is with us now. You can ask your question from a therapist perspective, Catholic perspective, happy to answer it. Numbers 1-888-914-9149. Or you can ask your question now on social media. Just follow me at Timmery, T-I-M-M-E-R-I-E. You're listening to Trending with Timmery, where you can discuss what matters most to you. Join the conversation, 888-914-9149. It's our weekly marriage hour today on Trending. Joining me now is Joe Sakura. He's a licensed marriage and family therapist here to take your questions about dating, relationships, marriage. If you have a question, give us a call. The number is 1-888-914-9149. Or you can ask your question now on social media. Uh, Joe, you always come from a strong Catholic perspective to help in guiding a dating and relationship and marital issues that a lot of people are struggling through. I'm fascinated by what's happening right now with many young people in this flux when it comes to living, quote unquote, the single life in their 30s. They never thought that they would be there. What are your tips for young Catholics who are in the midst of this challenge today of trying to figure out their vocation. They're single. They want to be married. What would you do? Like, what are those steps maybe for help healing uh, to be really whole, to be open to what God has in store uh, while they try to see, you know, what the next steps are? You know, that's a great question. And it's, it's not just hyperbole. I mean, there really are you know, thousands and thousands of young people who don't know how to move forward, who don't know how to take that next step. And there might even be a desire to do it. Uh, I, I mean, I, I'm working with some young women right now, both in their early 30s, who it's like, I want to be married. I just don't know what's going on. So there's no easy answer. Uh, you know, I, I think in part, there are some people who are just shy from the idea of commitment. You know, everything about our society right now is is so easy to move. I mean, literally, you can move from California to Chicago to Florida. You know, you can take your job with you. Everything is so portable and disposable that I think there's a sense, there's a, a fear. It's like, well, am I also disposable? You know, should I enter into this relationship? Should I give myself completely, completely vulnerable to this person when it, I look around and everything seems so disposable? So I, I think it's a real challenge. But I also see, and this is really hopeful for me, I see young people who say, I really want to do this. <laughs> I recognize that I don't want to be alone forever, that I want to be in relationship, that I want to be married, that I want to have kids so there's a natural desire to move towards that. And I don't see that as changing. I just think there's some fear about it. And I think some of it's societal. Some of it is we just don't you know, talk about 
marriage and the positive aspects of marriage. And again, Tim Reed, you know, you and I have had this conversation before. Even if I was not Catholic, if I had no understanding of the Christian life, I would be a huge proponent of marriage. Because when you look at the secular research, we thrive in relationship. I mean, from making more money to living longer, to have having better health outcomes, to surviving accidents and calamities and cancer. So there's a natural desire. There's a real need to be in relationship. I just think there's a fear. Why, you know, how do you get beyond that? Uh, I, I, you know, it, it's a tough answer. I, I, I don't know that, um, you know, social media dating apps are necessarily the way to go. I think if you want to meet people of quality, I think you've got to engage. I think you've got to be a, you know, living and, and breathing and moving where there are other people who share your values, like church, <laughs> you know, if you're Catholic, go to church, you know, be in these family functions. Uh, but it's very doable. I think people are waiting a little bit longer, but I still see a very healthy and strong desire to be committed and to be in marriages. We have a question coming from Dan on Instagram. He said, my wife recently left me. We've been married for two years. What do I do? I prayed all the novenas. I've gone to mass. What do I do? Where do I go from here? Well, Dan, obviously it's, it's a challenge. I would say you've got to focus on what you can do and what you can do is look at your own part of the relationship. You know, rather than trying to see what your spouse has done wrong, how they violated the marriage contract, what is wrong with them, look at your own side of the track, so to speak. Look at your own life. You know, maybe you go back to your wife and without pointing out what she has done, how she has hurt you, look and focus on what you have done wrong. That's the first step. But I would say go beyond that. Don't just acknowledge what you've done wrong. But create a picture. Speak about that vision of what you would want in a relationship. You can say, you know what? We have blown this. This has been my part that I've done wrong. But this is the vision that I have for this relationship. I think that together we can create a vibrant and loving and tender and exceptional relationship. So start from yourself and then move forward and talk about what you want to happen. A lot of times we create more problems from ourself, for ourselves and our marriages when we just focus on what is wrong. Instead, focus. And when you were getting along well, when the marriage was thriving, what were you doing then? Go back to that and, and try to recreate that if that's possible. Mm. And I'll recommend a book. Uh, Layla Miller compiled a book called Impossible Marriages Redeemed. It's about marriages that were on the brink of divorce, dozens of marriages and stories about how and they some couples had even gone through uh, going through to receive a, a civil divorce and they were still married in the eyes of the church. And to see the reconciliation in the midst of infidelity, sexual addictions, it was phenomenal to see these stories and the hope that is there. Uh, don't lose hope. I think what is so important in the midst of this conversation, the whole world says, you know, it's okay, you know, move on, date someone else. And I'm always a standard Joe from a Catholic perspective, the number of even, you know, well-meaning, informed Catholics who encourage people to just get out there, get divorced, 
date, move on. Yet that's not the Catholic understanding we have of marriages, that marriages are permanent. Unless annulled, declared that it never existed to begin with, that marriage is still a marriage contract that we have to honor. Even if, again, there are times you and I were talking about this earlier where there is a necessary separation for physical safety. That is important uh, that's happened there. But from a Catholic perspective, understanding that permanence. And, you know, there's a reason the vows say till death do us part and sickness and in health for richer or poor. Those seasons of life are really, really difficult. And yet that's what we are called to embrace one another in the midst of those moments. Yeah, it look, it's a challenge. It is a challenge to get married and stay married. I don't know how much of a challenge it is to get married, <laughs> but to stay married, to have a thriving marriage, we really have to be intentional. You know, I, I, I don't want to say, oh, it takes a tremendous amount of hard work. It, yes, it does. If it feels like you're on the edge of divorce, if you've lost that closeness, then it does take work. Uh, but it's very doable. Uh, and I think the easiest way to do that is if you are struggling right now in your marriage, rather than asking, what are we doing wrong? Rephrase the question and have this conversation with your spouse if you're struggling. Hey, when we were getting along well, right, when we were engaged and happy and excited about this relationship, what were we doing? Again, my, my good friend, Father Dave, says that. He says, you've got to go back to that engaged time, you know, where you were really wanting to understand and hear and see each other and you were making plans together. Go back. Let that be the focus of your conversation. When things are going well, what were you doing? That, that to me, is a better perspective. Another question came on today from Charmaine on Facebook. She asked if you could cover grief, especially in light for women, and especially if you're experiencing having lost a spouse. Well, you know, there's there there are no magic steps to move through it. You know, I mean, some people, you know, I think we naturally want to say, well, do these five steps and you'll feel better. It's, it's messy. There are stages of grief. You know, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross talks about the five stages of death and dying. And, and I think it's helpful for a framework. But I would say the first thing is to really allow yourself to feel. You know, death is as natural as birth. And we're, we're moving through this life. But really allow yourself to feel. You know, find those people, those friends uh, whoever it is that you can speak about your loss, it, it's really important that we acknowledge that. You know, Jesus at the tomb of Lazarus wept, you know, and I think that's a great model. It's okay for us to weep. It's okay for us to actually acknowledge that pain. I, I guess the one distinction I would make is just like in any emotion, we can get stuck. So although I'm saying allow yourself to feel the grief, allow yourself to feel and experience the sadness, the word that I would use is just notice what's going on rather than trying to suppress the grief or not accept it or thinking, oh, I've got to be strong. Just notice what's going on. Wow, I feel really overwhelmed right now. I feel really sad right now. I feel this tremendous loss right now. Just acknowledge it because in that sense, when you acknowledge that kind of pain, in a way, it helps to inoculate you from getting stuck in that pain. So we have to allow ourselves to move through it without getting stuck in it. 
I think great question. I, yeah. I hope that's a sufficient answer. It's oh, and not I think an easy that's. One. I think that's helpful for so many people. I mean, everyone experiences grief at moments, and some, you know, God has allowed that cross more severe than others. But you mentioned talking about it with someone who can listen. And I think that's very significant that a lot of the time in grief, uh, people isolate themselves or they, you know, turn to maybe certain people and they don't open up to others. And there's a reason you need to protect yourself. But sometimes I think we're afraid that we're a failure or we've done something wrong or what other people think. But I think that's the gift of our community and the people who can surround us is that they often have these words of wisdom that can be present in the midst of saying, I'm struggling. And there are people, Joe, who don't have any empathy as well. And they, those are just those people you don't talk about your grief with. But I think more often we need to share in person a little bit more than we're willing to in simple ways. You're listening to I Trending with Catholics, Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. Oh, I was just going to say, you know, as Catholics, we have a very healthy relationship, I would say, with death, with grief. You know, you walk into any Catholic church and what do you see? Right up there, you see Christ on the cross. You know, we don't run from it. But a lot of times, you know, your friends, your family members, just like you said, Timory, they might want to run from it. I, I've had people that have wanted to read and, and just to be with me because I've experienced loss. You know, my oldest son passed away. And, and sometimes you've got to be with those who can say, you know what? Yes, I can really sit with you in this pain, in this struggle. And, and I would say that's the best thing that you can do if there's somebody around you who has experienced that kind of loss. Just be willing to be with them, to walk with them through that darkness. You got to walk through the darkness before you can get back to the light. A side note on working on listening, because I think this is a skill many of us need to work on. I imagine this is something you talk to many of your clients about. Have you ever seen, it's a video on YouTube, and I don't watch a lot of YouTube, but someone showed it to me years ago. It's not about the nail. Have you ever seen that? It's not about what? It's not about the nail. Have you seen that video? Uh, I may, it sounds familiar, but okay, I'm not I'm, calling it. I'll have it. to send it because it's a really funny video. Uh, but I think it's one of those moments where we, we get it wrong so often when it comes to like when people are sharing that they're going through something that we sit there and immediately try to fix it, right? We're always trying to fix things when someone just needs to be heard. But there's this video of this girl with a giant nail sticking out of her forehead and she's talking to her boyfriend and she's just trying to tell him about her headache and how bad her head hurts. And like, if there's just, it's as if there's something just between her eyes, a little above her eyebrows. And the whole time the boy's like, like trying to tell her that there's a nail in her forehead and she's looking at him and toward the end of the video she finally says it's not about the nail (laughs) now grant there's a real nail there and there was something that could have fixed the situation but what she needed was to be heard and in general we tend to struggle to just validate what someone is saying and to allow them to be heard before we immediately try to solve the problem so what what do we need to do if you were to give one or two tips for how to better engage in active listening? Yeah, and I did see that video. It is very, very funny now that you described it. It's very funny. I would say this. Typically, when people come to me or go to any other therapist and they say, oh, we just don't communicate, it's a very common problem. But really what it means is we're not really hearing each other. You know, you can speak the words 
You can even parrot back the words and say, oh, you say this. But the word I use is empathetic listening or empathetic attunement would be another way to say it. And what that means is, Timory, you say something to your spouse or you say something to me right now. And I show that I understand what you're saying. So Timothy, um, Timothy, Timory, what you're saying is, you know, A, B, C, and D. I, I'm not just repeating back to you. I show that I really understand it. And, and this is really so important. Men tend to be fixers, right? <laughs> just like the example you gave with the nail. We want to just remove the nail. Oh, my head hurts. Well, let's take the nail off. But really what the, the deeper desire, what we really want is to feel heard and understood because when you give somebody that experience, when you really show that you hear them, then what it means is you matter. I see you. You're important. You're valuable. You matter. It doesn't mean you have to agree with them. It just means that you really show that you understand them. And I would say put the focus on that, on understanding. And that will actually solve most of the problems. Most of mm -hmm. us don't want to be fixed because we don't want to feel like we're broken. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but we mm -hmm. do want to feel heard and understood. Mm, that's so important. I mean, even engaging in a lesson on active listening, I think it's a, such a lost art today. Conversation skills, yet alone actually listening and not talking about ourselves. That's Joe Sikora. You can find his new book, The Whole World is Going Crazy, but you don't have to. It's a scriptural and psychological response to really achieve healing in your life. I hope you'll pick it up. It's a how-to guide, uh, things to work on from whether you're single, married, have children there is robust information from a faith-filled perspective. Joe, thank you so much for joining us. We'll post a link to his website, but especially this book that you need to pick up today by Joe Sakura. Coming right back during our weekly marriage hour here on Trending with Timory. Again, happy to take your questions. 1-888-914-9149. listening to Trending with Timory, where you can discuss what matters most to you. Join the conversation, 888-914-9149. Yo, potty training your kids, it's just a wonderful thing, especially when you're eating dinner and they decide four times in the middle of dinner that they have to go to the bathroom. My daughter, over and over again, I'm just trying to eat dinner. My husband was gone for the evening and my daughter for the fourth time had to go to the bathroom. By the time she was done, the fourth time in the middle of the meal, in the middle of the meal, my food's cold. I really don't like like dry food on my plate. It was cold meat, dried meat. And then my daughter wants to eat my food. She decides she's done with hers. Didn't want to eat hers anymore. Anyways, it was a very long night last night, but it was definitely one of those moments. My producer, Jim, and I were just talking about it. You know, you, you end up starving sometimes as a parent, and you're trying to figure out what to eat after you've not eaten enough or it's taken too long to eat after four trips to the bathroom with your two-year-old potty-trained child that you just grab for the carbs. So the good news is it's the octave of Easter, as we were just saying, and it's okay to indulge a little bit, but it's also important not to lose all the effort we make made during Lent to have self-control, to practice prudence, uh, to lose those extra pounds. So don't give up. Have a uh, have a heart and intention and persevere even after celebrating. Although I think every time I celebrate Easter octave, I always end up gaining a few pounds as I justify making a delicious dessert. I made 
pecan muffins this morning. We had brunch with my mom, so that was a lot of fun. And a frittata. We had to go healthy. We didn't have the crust on the frittata because that would be... what's What is the version if it's got a crust? A quiche. A quiche has a crust and a frittata has no crust. Anyways, I digress. I wanted to answer a question here really quick because I know a lot of people have been asking how my baby girl's doing. Uh, my second daughter is going to be four months old in a couple weeks here and she's doing remarkably well. Those of you who journeyed with us through uh, the NICU and everything that happened, we spent five days in the NICU, very long story. Uh, she ended up having three holes in her heart and a high amount of pressure and one of the lower left chambers that was making it really difficult for her to breathe uh, properly and get proper oxygen flow throughout her body. So basically, uh, we've been in this holding pattern of wait and see, monitor. She is thriving. She does well day to day. And we just continue to monitor her through appointments. About a week and a half ago, we had our major kind of milestone of an another echocardiogram for her that we're waiting on the results to hear back from the doctor as sometimes it just takes a while to hear those results and so we're hoping for good news I have a lot of peace and hope I do think that you know whatever has been going on either and the expectation is that a lot of it will have healed hopefully and that any holes she has in her heart uh, are some of those smaller more common holes that a lot of people have and that the bigger ones uh, will have gone away and that the high pressure in her the lower chamber of her heart will have gone away as well. So that's the latest update. Day to day, she's doing wonderfully. All the extra doctor's appointments have definitely been a little bit of uh, extra cross and time for all of us, uh, but it's been good to monitor and see how she's doing it. And I truly know it's the grace of so many people who have been praying for us and that God has allowed, I think, this incredible community to come together uh, to pray and care for some of the most innocent in our society. And that, I think at the time, you know, was my daughter who needed that prayer and support. And I only pray, I only pray uh, that we would have more people praying for those children, especially in the NICU, who so deeply need that intercessory prayer. It was so difficult to see kind of the abandonment of so many children there in the NICU. And I know some people have to work, but I think in this pro-abortion culture, that I saw the bad fruits of that when I was in the NICU with my daughter. There were many children who physicians were fighting for their lives, but parents weren't willing or able at times to be there. And so as we talk about what's happening in the culture right now, and a lot's happening, we'll talk about it tomorrow on Trending, we need to understand that this fight for life has so many dimensions to it, whether it's the dimension of fighting for those babies who, where women are walking to the abortion clinic and being that last stand of help as a sidewalk counselor for women, being a prayer warrior, being a part of our crisis pregnancy systems, but also helping parents who have children to bond with their children, to embrace their children, to embrace the change in life that occurs with children, such as taking your daughter to the bathroom four times when you're eating dinner that, yes, that can be difficult and yes, lead to a cold meal, but it's also a joy. Uh, and you can't always express what a joy parenthood is, even in the midst of the difficulty. But if we're real and honest about how challenging it can be alongside the joy, I think that we have a more holistic approach for those people who are maybe struggling thinking that they're the only ones that are having a difficult time connecting with their child, that a child came in a difficult timing. Uh, there's so much that can be said. 
to those moments and challenges. You're listening to Trending with Timory here on Relevant Radio. I did want to mention for just a moment some exciting and I think neat news. We watch the stories of so many of our celebrities and, you know, when they get married, when they have children. And a really fascinating story over the last week or so was that Millie Bobby Brown, you may know her from the Netflix show Stranger Things, uh, she is actually engaged to Jake Bon Jovi. Uh, she's only 19 years old, Jake Bon Jovi's 20, son of the Bon Jovi, the musician that we all know and many love. And it's really a hit a nerve for many people. Many people are excited and just overwhelmed with joy, especially to kind of see this comeback or exposure to the Bon Jovi family. And a lot of people have really loved Millie Bobby Brown from the work she's done in Stranger Things. They've grown up in a certain respect with her. And, you know, from her dating two TikTok stars as a very young teenager and then dating Jake Bon Jovi for, I think, about two and a half years now. So she was 17, 16 when they got together. People are responding to the fact that they are engaged. Now, a lot of people are very quick to react as well on one side, being excited, and on the other side, saying that this marriage is a bad idea, that no one who gets married young stays together. People are saying they'll be divorced by the time they're 25. I always think it's interesting to see the pessimism that enters in every time a couple, especially a young couple, is willing to commit themselves to getting married. I remember when I first was engaged that many people had a very pessimistic view of marriage. A lot of people said, oh, well, are you sure? Is this really what you want to do? Which I think are important questions, but not uh, really wrapped in sarcasm and doubt from the get-go. But here's an interesting study that came out last year from the Institute for Family Studies. The research pointed to the fact that when people marry young, that's even in their just out of high school, late teens and early 20s, that if they have faith, that these are marriages that are less likely to divorce in your common marriage. That it's not age that makes your marriage bulletproof, but that it's actually faith. And the young couples who are getting married with faith are having very high success rates when it comes to fidelity, staying married, and reporting that they're happier. Couples who married in their early 20s have actually reported, those who have had faith, that they are happier than your average couple today. So when people and sometimes parents really try to push for this idea that you should wait to get married, wait until you're 25, historically, that's not what we've seen as a culture. That in fact, marriages have been successful in the late teens and early 20s. It's when the body is geared and actually most prepared physically to have children as well. And that we need to celebrate moments like these, such as when Millie Bobby Brown gets engaged to Jake Bon Jovi at the age of 19. I hope that we can pray and offer a prayer for this marriage, just pausing now for a moment to celebrate this and encourage that fidelity, that choice to get married, that choice to have children, I think is a good thing. But help young couples today as they're desiring to marry and have children to bring faith in the important and fundamental dimension of grace, the grace of God into that marriage, which will allow it to be the glue that makes it a healthy and wholesome and holy marriage.